Greetings and welcome to another episode of Unpacking Islamophobia, a podcast project brought to you by the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University. My name is Arsalan Iftikhar and I am your host. And today we will be speaking about the plight of the Chinese Uyghur Muslims with prominent lawyer and activist Nuri Turkle. Nuri currently serves as chairperson for the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, USCIRF, after being appointed there by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in 2020. That same year, Nuri was named to Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people in the world. And in 2021, he was also named one of Fortune 50's greatest leaders in the world. Nuri Turkle's memoir, published in 2022, is called No Escape, the true story of China's genocide of the Uyghurs. And Nuri Turkle is joining me today. Thank you so much, Nuri. It is always good to see your face, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for not only having me on, but um, keeping the spotlight on the Uyghur genocide. Well, you know, I want to start with the name, the title of your book. Uh, you know, your 2022 memoir is called No Escape. And I wanted you to tell our audience a little bit about why you chose that story and a little bit about your own origin story. Um, I get this question often because uh, no escape uh, and I'm here. uh, What are you escaping from? Um, So, you know, you know this uh, history that I was born in a Chinese re-education camp during the height of the Cultural Revolution. And those camps are very similar camps that uh, the modern world uh, learn about uh, in, in, in communist China that was specifically built to uh, collectively punish uh, Uyghur Muslims uh, in this uh, atheist uh, communist uh, country. So I feel that I was a, uh, I managed to escape uh, the Chinese persecution after surviving the camp, after getting my education in, in communist uh, educational system, up until the uh, to point of graduating from uh, a college. Um, and I was feeling great. I was granted asylum, uh, become a natural, naturalized US citizen, uh, lawyer in nation's capital, uh, and serving in the US government um, in this important government agency. And then I realized uh, when I was uh, about to write this book that no, wait, I'm not fully uh, escaped the Chinese persecution. And I can't see my mother and my father. Uh, the last time I saw my mother was in 2004 when she and my late father came to Washington. My, my father passed away last year. Um, and I haven't seen my mother for 19 years. And the Chinese uh, uh, government uh, sanctioned me in December 2021 in retaliation against the Biden administration's policies. Uh, including a diplomatic boycott of the Genocide Olympics in Beijing last February. And then uh, even after my father passed away last year, the Chinese won't let my mom to return to the United States to her American family. So, and, and you know, this harassment, uh, this intimidation, uh, even in my um, personal profession, professional life, American citizen and U.S. official made me feel that I have not been able to escape this um, brutal regime. Uh, and similarly, uh, through this book, through with this title, I also wanted to make general public uh, in the free societies like ours, 
uh, no longer feel that they can escape this brutal reality that China set up some of the most sophisticated surveillance systems surveilling their own uh, ethno-religious groups, the Uyghur Muslims in this case. And not only that, uh, they are exporting the model, uh, surveillance model, the governance model uh, to other countries. Uh, as we speak, there are over 80 countries adopted uh, the Chinese surveillance technology. And also domestically speaking, everything that we touch, you know, uh, consumer uh, products, uh, PPE, solar panels, everything reportedly been made with Uyghur slave labor. So I have not been able to escape the Chinese persecution. And I also wanted to re make American people, uh, especially uh, people who, um, uh, who cares about the future of our country, that they no longer say that they are uh, in a position to escape uh, this brutal reality and this brutal regime and this challenge coming our way, coming our way. So Nuri, I wanted to ask you um, about uh, a little more context. You know, according to the Chinese government, the current crisis that we see today around Uyghur Muslims, ostensibly for them, began around July 2009 during social unrest in Urumqi, which is the capital of the Xinjiang province. And, uh, you know, because a lot of folks might not have background in terms of who the Uyghur Muslims are, uh, where they come from, and how they impact the rest of the world, I was wondering if you could give us some background on the 2009 social unrest and why it was significant to where we are today. Yeah, the, before um, uh, the world come to know uh, about the Uyghur plight, the Uyghur genocide, uh, the easiest way that I find um, uh, useful to describe who the Uyghurs are uh, as follows. Uh, the Uyghurs are the other Tibetans that you have never heard of in the past. But those days are gone. Um, and I, I can't believe that I, I'm saying this, but I thought it was horrible then, uh, but I would go back to that uh, period in a heartbeat. I'm talking about 1990s, uh, early 1990s and uh, in the 1980s, even in late part of uh, uh, before the 9-11 uh, uh, era that uh, the entire Muslim population around the world uh, turned into a suspicious class. So that's how I initially, and still to this day, uh, use uh, to describe, or the way to describe who the Uyghurs are. But the Uyghurs are Turkic Muslims. I've been living um, in uh, the parts of China uh, uh, that are known as East Turkestan to the Uyghur people. The Uyghur people call it Sharqi Turkestan. That's a, um, kind of a half Arabic, half uh, Turkish name. Uh, the Uyghurs practice Sunni Islam uh, starting uh, from 12th, uh, 13th century. Prior to that, uh, based on the, the, uh, the history books, the Uyghurs ex, uh, practiced Buddhism, shamanism, and Christianity. So um, Uyghurs are one of the uh, oldest, uh, the, uh, the, one of the most uh, population in the world have practiced Islam for centuries. The Uyghurs homeland uh, makes one-sixth of the China proper. Um, uh, officially known as Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. So uh, it's not like the uh, provinces. In a province is a very different story. Uh, like Tibet, like Inner Mongolia, there are five autonomous regions uh, that Uyghur homeland is one of them. So when the communists took over with the help of Stalin in 1949, they changed the name from East Turkestan to Xinjiang, which means new dominion, new frontier, uh, essentially new colony. Uh, from that point all the way to 2009, uh, the Uyghurs have experienced various forms of discrimination. Uh, 
exploitation of their natural resources, uh, birth control, uh, imposition of Chinese medium in the education system, uh, forbidding, prohibiting uh, Uyghur women, children practicing Islam, displaying uh, signs uh, at the entrance of mosques saying things like teachers, women, uh, children under the age of 12 cannot enter this master pra pra uh, practice, otherwise will be, um, uh, will be subject to um, uh, 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 um, discipline, uh, if not a criminal punishment. So that kind of pressure uh, uh, cooker situation erupted in 2009. And this also relates to something that is happening today, uh, forced labor. Uh, in a uh, uh, American company uh, in uh, in the southern province of Guangdong, the Uyghur uh, workers uh, who were enslaved there, uh, uh, beaten up and and killed by ch a local Chinese mob, and then the Uyghurs in the homeland uh, in Urumqi took to the streets to demand justice. That essentially uh, created it, uh, the mindset for the Chinese the policymakers and leadership that. These people need to be uh, forcibly uh, uh, changed. Uh, we need to engage in some sort of uh, social engineering program to make them less Muslim, uh, make them less Uyghur so that they will be identified as Chinese. Uh, calling Uyghurs as Chinese is very, very offensive term. Hmm. Uh, so it, it is, uh, it's, it's unstated goal of the Chinese state to turn Uyghurs into a Han Chinese. Uh, by describing it something like a uh, normal human being. Former Chinese ambassador to Washington uh, told CNN Farid Zakaria that his government is uh, helping Uyghurs to uh, transform into normal human being. To the Chinese government, not being Muslim, not being Uyghur, uh, following their tradition, adopting their language, way of life, uh, marrying their people uh, is uh, a normalization process. But to me and many others, that is a human re-engineering. Today, the Chinese uh, operates the world's largest concentration camp that the world has not seen since the Holocaust era. During the height of the Holocaust, uh, the largest number of Jews, Roma, and others detained in the concentration camps were 750,000 because they were killing and, and bringing new ones. But in China, based on uh, U.S. government's estimate, anywhere between two to three million Uyghurs have been locked up in a uh, industrial-scale concentration camps. And also, in addition to that, about 800,000 to 1, 1 million Uyghur children, as reported in the New York Times, being sent to the children's uh, camps. This essentially makes the Chinese uh, uh, committing genocide against Uyghur children as well. On top of that, uh, 83 global brand reportedly using Uyghur slave labor. So some of the detainees were initially sent to the concentration camps, now sent to uh, uh, forced labor camps, making sneakers, solar panels, components, uh, computer components, PPEs, uh, beauty products. And then finally, uh, Uyghur intellectuals been rounded up, uh, social elites been rounded up, religious leaders been rounded up and sent to uh, concentration camps. I know for a fact that several of my Uyghur American friends uh, who have family members who uh, used to be uh, state employees, even their uh, years of uh, employment with the state uh, did not uh, secure or guarantee or spare them from the concentration camps. So the 2009 was the turning point that the Chinese had given up 
stick and carrot policy and that helped with Xi Jinping coming to power in 2012, which essentially says, okay, we got to do something to completely uh, control lives and souls, um, uh, properties and land of these people so that we will have a better, uh, more secured future in our plan to uh, realize this China dream through Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the Belt and Road Initiative in just a minute, but I want to talk a little bit more about the uh, the internment camps. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, there was a seminal uh, 2018 human rights uh, report which found that over 1 million Muslim Uyghurs were forced to renounce Islam, uh, uh, criticized basic Muslim practices, forced to drink alcohol and eat pork, both which are uh, forbidden for uh, observant Muslims, and even recite communist propaganda songs. I want you to uh, tell us a little bit more about what we know about these concentration camps uh, and, and the, the scale and magnitude. Uh, yeah. The camps, um, you know, um, um, uh, during the process of writing my book, I studied the history of concentration camps by relying on this uh, concentration uh, camp historian, Andrea Pritzker's book called One Long Night. Um, I was disturbed when I look at um, the historical uh, nature and the modern day concentration camps, uh, specifically on their commonalities, um, such as uh, collective punishment, based on ethno-religious background, um, extrajudicial nature, and also uh, not knowing why uh, a detainee been locked up. You know, when you interview uh, the camp survivors, the first thing they will tell you is like, I don't know why they took me in there. Uh, I still don't know why they took me in there. So, so these are the kind of commonalities that the Uyghur camps share with the historical camps. But why the question, then the question becomes, what is the Chinese government's problem with the Uyghur people? The Uyghur people's problem, uh, uh, perceived problem by the Chinese is being Uyghur Muslim. Uh, so the Chinese Communist Party uh, always in the past treated uh, Uyghur uh, religious uh, demand for religious freedom or desire for religious freedom some sort of rallying cry or slogan. But for the Uyghur people, it's a matter of death and life, life and death, because you know the Uyghur value, uh, Uyghur family, uh, Uyghur society, Uyghur architecture, Uyghur arts, uh, even Uyghur music uh, coming from the Sufi uh, background, sure. all boils down to Islamic value. Uh, sure. The Uyghurs have been very, very, um, the, there's a if you if you ask uh, anyone what is the Uyghur value they will describe uh, a list of values or uh, uh, things that are part of the Uyghur value you'd be surprised this is very common in Islamic culture so so the the Uyghur um, being uh, Uyghur identity Uyghur way of life uh, by and large uh, uh, use Islamic teaching as a source so the Chinese believe that such a belief. Uh, uh, and such a, a way of living a dignified life uh, goes on the face of the Chinese communist ideology. So the Chinese, uh, you know, as reported, you know, this is not a, a news to anyone uh, who reads about the Chinese. They are, uh, they, the Chinese regime, specifically the Communist Party, has been extremely hostile 
to uh, to religious practices, specifically uh, a Western religion. So Western religion includes Christianity and Islam. Uh, the Buddhism and other religion is considered domestic religion or non-foreign religion. So to the Chinese, uh, when you listen to it, uh, uh, religious pre religion presents an enormous threat because of the potential to undermine the regimes to uh, regimes hold on power. And uh, China's officials, and this has been part of the leaked documents, have likened the belief in Islam in particular to a mental illness and thought virus. So this mental illness, thought virus, based on their perception, based on the, their, their determination, need to be cleaned out before it uh, 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 spreads to the entire population. And the, why this Western religion is a problem, that also has something to do with the Uyghur's connection to the outside world, specifically Islamic world. Sure. When it comes to the, uh, the, the Christian community, they link the Western religion to, re, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights, essentially, uh, religion, uh, religious uh, belief, um, uh, freedom of uh, speech, freedom of the press and the assembly. So they focus on those four things as a threat. As you know, that all the Abrahamic religion share uh, so much in common, and Chinese have figured this out long time ago. So uh, when you look at the um, uh, the way that they talk about Islam, the way they talk about even Catholics in China, you will be uh, you'll be surprised how early that they made up their mind that uh, foreign religion is a threat, but they don't say it. They always said, oh, you know, we're trying to um, root out terrorism. What kind of terrorism that they're talking about? Uh, they also often say separatism, uh, extremism. If you decide to grow a beard, or if you decided to uh, educate your children, uh, or instill, instill value in your children uh, on things as simple as marrying a Muslim man or woman, can be perceived as a signs of uh, extremism. Uh, in April 2017, uh, they published um, a, uh, not published, legislated something called the extremification measure, uh, sanctioning 48 behaviors that includes growing beard, abstaining from alcohol uh, or other uh, human contact, mm -hmm. um, and also um, uh, discouraging or interfering children's love affair with non-Uyghur, non-Muslim individuals. Uh, prayer, praying five times a day, uh, or keeping religious text, uh, at least uh, as things as simple as prayer mat. The Chinese online retailer, the retailer uh, reportedly uh, forced by the Chinese state to disclose purchase history of individuals who bought a beard um, uh, breed, uh, and the prayer mat and uh, religious materials. A Silicon Valley-based company called Zapia was promoting uh, this app for religious text uh, sharing, okay. and they used that app uh, traces or data, uh, uh, transactional history or sharing history to round it up people. So this regime is inherently anti-Islam, but here's the irony. Okay. In the face of this reality, in the backdrop of the Chinese hostility to Islam in particular, 
In today's strange world, the biggest supporters of communist China comes from Muslim countries. Let that sink in. It oh. is disturbing. It is. Um, two ways. One, uh, some countries, uh, I don't hesitate to name name, uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, could be instrumental in changing China's behavior. This is not an exaggeration. Indeed. MBS's influence over the thinking of Chinese uh, or the Erdogan's um, influence in the mindset of the Chinese. So that, 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 that's actually a per that is my that is my next question. Cannot Uch. be understated. No, and and that's my next question, right? And and it's it's going back. It's tying it all together in terms of the silence of the, of the world, particularly the Muslim world, and 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 to me, it starts as you mentioned with the Belt and Road Initiative. And for those people who don't know, the Belt and Road Initiative is a staggering $1 trillion infrastructure project, which ostensibly is gonna connect China all the way to Africa. And basically what China has done is they have walked along that path with their $1 trillion uh, in, in, uh, of money and essentially bought off the silence of many Muslim majority world leaders. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, that uh, then Prime Minister of Pakistan Imran Khan was being interviewed by a Turkish network and he was asking, he was asked, you know, so are you not allowed to uh, criticize the Chinese because of uh, all the money that you're getting in terms of the $63 billion in the CPEC corridor, the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which is going to build the port city of Gwadar. And on camera, Imran Khan said, to tell you the truth, I don't even really know what's going on there, even though Xinjiang actually shares a border with the country of Pakistan. You also mentioned Turkey. Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is a self-styled populist uh, claiming to stand up for Muslims worldwide, once actually said that the Uyghurs are living there happily when talked about, uh, when asked about internment camps, even though his own foreign ministry had refuted him uh, just uh, a couple of months earlier. And, and MBS, uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, who I hasten to add uh, the CIA found was responsible for the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, also said that China is allowed to carry de-extremism uh, de uh, campaigns like the ones they have against the Uyghurs. And so my question to you, Nuri, is this, 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 this purchased silence of Muslim world leaders is obviously astonishing uh, to anybody, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the Belt and Road Initiative uh, and the, the the impact that the money Chinese money is having on the way that uh, the Muslim world leaders uh, perceive the situation of the Uyghurs today? The um, the one of the uh, uh, China's uh, unstated goal, as I alluded earlier, um, involves China's. Uh, uh, strategic, uh, geostrategic interest, geopolitical interest uh, in uh, Central Asia uh, by way of uh, getting, uh, you know, uh, reaching to African and uh, re uh, natural resources and also uh, European, Eastern, Central European market. Now we have another new angle, you know, in the past, in the early parts of BRI, uh, the international community were focused on like places like ports, um, uh, but now we have a, a something new, which is uh, Chinese technology. Um, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, BRI as known, um, is a Xi Jinping signature project. So this is a kind of a soft power projection of uh, a, a soft power 
uh, uh, projecting soft power to expand China's influence. Uh, there's a, uh, a scholar uh, who's currently serving in the uh, Biden White House, uh, uh, wrote a book called Long Game. In that book, uh, it, it essentially explains the Chinese, in, uh, Chinese ambition, two words, one, blunt and build. While blunting uh, the US influence around the world through a project like this, they are building their own uh, through international organizations. Um, it's kind of a parallel uh, uh, undertaking. One hand, they pour, showering money uh, to countries uh, in the Middle East, in Central Asia, in Southeast Asia, Africa, uh, essentially saying, look, America is not your friend. Uh, there's some using some historical mistakes that the United States made and in, 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 in such as the, the Iraqi war. Uh, and now the Afghanistan debacle uh, and the US history in some parts of Africa, they use that to, um, uh, to make their own product, uh, which is the projects, infrastructure projects, uh, loans to, uh, to buy out silence. Uh, expand their influence. So they currently, as of uh, 2020, this as of last month, uh, there are 151 countries still listed as part of the uh, BRI project. Wow. Some countries are uh, showing buyer's remorse. Uh, the maturity of the Chinese investment uh, 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 will uh, be coming up. Uh, the loan payment will start, and most of those countries, uh, particularly in the global south, will not be able to make uh, payments. And then what will happen is that this will create huge resentment in, uh, in a domestic front. And at, at the same time, Chinese will come uh, and say, look, you cannot pay it, but I have to own it now, just like the way that uh, what happened in Sri Lanka. So, so this this thing is is really really um, you know with the uh, the Putin's reinvasion of Iraq, the uh, some domestic problems here in uh, in the United States and Europe, kind of distracted uh, policymakers from focusing on this. Uh, there was some active, very healthy discussion uh, a few years ago. Not much going on, but uh, Chinese has has not um, a Chinese government. Uh, or, or those who are proponent of this uh, global ambition um, uh, in Xi Jinping's China, for Xi Jinping's China, haven't really given up on this project yet. This is something I, to me, the most important thing is the infrastructure aspect of this project. So what is happening now is the Chinese installing cell towers, um, uh, installing uh, submarine uh, telecommunication cables. So these are very expensive. Uh, it's not easy to replace. Once you install them, once you let them install, you're locked in. So once you're locked in, you become in, uh, permanently dependent. I mean, why in the, even in the United States, uh, there's some uh, rural areas still inclined to use uh, 5G network provided by uh, Huawei because it's a cheaper alternative. In the societies like ours, uh, the companies, big telecommunication companies don't invest in the way that they should to prevent uh, uh, us being in a situation to rely on technology uh, by unfriendly regimes like China.
in, in, in other countries, it's the same problem. Uh, the government simply don't have a resources to fund those infrastructure projects. Once, once they installed, uh, once they provide technology comes with um, uh, financial incentives, a political economic aspect. The more importantly, once they put those equipment in or install them, the Chinese will have a permanent access to the data. Once you have the data, they can control uh, uh, the rest of the process. So China is rightfully been described as a new Saudi Arabia uh, when it comes to personal data. So the, 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 the danger of another thing, I will stop after this mentioning, um, the Chinese uh, um, uh, tech giant Huawei uh, publicly brags about 140 uh, the uh, cloud storage contract that they're able to sign on with 140 countries. Uh, at the United Nations, we have about 190. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and you can just appreciate how successful that the Chinese um, uh, BRI project uh, in various spheres have been. So, uh, um, it, you know, it looks innocuous, harmless, but in the long term, a lot of countries that are signed on, including some European countries, will will have a very serious um, regret, uh, a buyer's remorse, in a simple in, in simple terms. You know, my final my final question to you, Nuri, is um, what what do you what do you hope happens in the future? Uh, you know, we had the in twenty nineteen the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act that was passed in Congress, we had had a former Secretary of State refer to what's happening as a genocide, but we also still had a, you know, 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, while a million people plus were in internment camps and nobody said a word. And so, you know, as, as one of the most prominent Uyghur Muslim public intellectuals in the West, what do you hope, how, how can we get these people out of the camps? How do we put, how do we bring China to account for, for what's going on uh, to over a million people simply because of their religious identity. So this is, you know, you read my mind. This is something that keeps me awake at night uh, for two reasons. One, uh, Arslan, you would, I, I, I think you would agree if any country around the world uh, locks up, not three million, several hundred thousand Muslim population in a concentration camp, you can anticipate reasonably uh, resolution after resolution at the UN. Absolutely. Screaming, yelling from the rooftop, name calling, uh, uh, shaming, uh, naming campaigns, um, and street protests in the Muslim countries. But none of that, none of them have happened. Yeah. Because China happened to be an inconvenient adversary to take on. Uh, the Uyghurs are also uh, happen to be. A, a type of people uh, lending support would cost dearly. Um, ask uh, a basketball player Enes Kanter um, for speaking out. Uh, former Arsenal soccer player um, Mesut Özil, uh, the German, sure. who posted um, on his uh, uh, Instagram account uh, criticizing China for the atrocities. He was benched, uh, ended up leaving Premier League. 
uh, to this day, there's no single uh, documentary, let alone movie being made by uh, Silk, uh, Hollywood. There's no single uh, Silicon Valley executive. Actually, there's one of them mocking. It's like, who cares about the Uyghurs? If you remember, there was a guy by the name Shama something, I forgot his last name, an immigrant from Sri Lanka yeah, uh, to was... Canada, a child of an immigrant, yeah. mocking the Uyghurs, like essentially saying, uh, so so there, there's, there's a, uh, I, you know, I feel very comfortable. I don't think that I need to um, uh, bite my tongue to say this. Uh, if the Uyghurs happen to be a different type of Muslims, uh, we may have seen a different type of response from Europe in particular. Uh, if the China is a different type of adversary, we will have seen a very different type of responses from the Muslim streets. So, um, so it, it, is, it is very distressful situation to be frank. Uh, when I look at the world's uh, reaction to uh, Putin's crimes in Ukraine, I was heartwarmed. I was uh, encouraged. In fact, it uh, compelled me even uh, myself to be a voice for Ukrainian people. Maybe because of my work uh, supporting the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian democracy and sovereignty, I got punished. I, I get sanctioned by Putin. So. It's also worth, it's all worth it. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, why don't we see a similar type of uh, reaction from the business community? As you may recall, in the early parts of the invasion, reinvasion, in less than two weeks, the global business community either just shut it down, pull it out, or suspended their business practices. Even to this day, after this genocide being in its sixth year, there's no single uh, global brand that publicly calls out China. There are few of them uh, relocated their sourcing um, base, but still, so, so these kind of things really, really bothers me. And then the other thing in the moral ground, uh, we always hear politicians saying that we should not let Putin to normalize these kind of war crimes, uh, bombing civilian buildings, uh, taking children to the camps. Putin is also following Xi Jinping's model. Uh, it's very disturbing, uh, focusing on Ukrainian children. Focusing means taking them away, uh, sending them to the camps. So, so international community, including myself, yourself, are reasonably uh, uh, morally supportive of the Ukrainian cause. And we've been chanting that we should not same type of logic could and should apply to Xi Jinping. Sure. For me, Putin is a kind of a storm. You know, once it's gone, mm -hmm. we may have a different type of relationship with the Russian Federation. And I can't say the same about China. The CCP has a plan for the world. They incorporated everything into the um, national security strategy, even religious persecution, because it, it creates resentment against the government. It becomes a source for rallying uh, uh, against the Chinese uh, communist state. So they made up their mind. So what should be done? I think one very simple thing, the policymakers around the world need to grow a backbone. And then two, the policymakers and heads of state government officials need to be reminded that the history will not be kind to them because they're looking the other way in the face of this danger about our future. You know, the Uyghur, the damage that uh, this genocide, this regime caused to the Uyghurs are irrepar irreparable. Yeah. 
hundreds of thousands of families been broken. We talked about just bare minimum 800,000 children. This was one of the reasons that former Secretary of State Pompeo feel compelled to call this a genocide. On the same day, Tony Blinken acknowledged that it would be his judgment when he was pressed by uh, a senator in a confirmation hearing. So that in of itself shows that this is a very serious problem, but the lack of political will, um, focusing too much on the business interest, uh, money, uh, focusing too much on you know, using China against, um, uh, or in the, in, in, for their economic interest vis-a-vis -vis United States and Europe. Some countries do that, using China to get attention from the others for yeah. geopolitical reasons. So the Uyghurs become a very um, useful football uh, in some countries dealing with the Chinese. But at the same time, um, Arslan, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for our, our country for the bold steps have taken. You know, somebody living, working in the in human rights space for more than two decades, I never thought that the Uyghur community would be able to pass two pieces of important legislation uh, without any monetary investment. In Washington, uh, lobbying a bill requires lots of resources. Lots. There's no PR firm. There's no lo uh, 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 lobbying firm. There's no even organized movement. Uh, the Uyghur people been, deserve a lot of credit being able to do this in the U.S. Capitol. Now we have a bipartisan consensus, you know, moving to the positive side. I'm appointed by uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, a few days ago. I attended the State of Union at the invitation of Republican leadership. Thanks. I had a chance to uh, meet and greet with uh, Speaker McCarthy. So this is a bipartisan, you know, what part of religious freedom, human rights, ever even connects to a party politics. This is my mission. When I'm talking about religious freedom, when I'm talking about human rights, when I'm talking about freedom in general, I don't let people uh, uh, bring in uh, their po political views. You know, we all have opinion, but this is a freedom. This is, as I noted early on, life in that situation. You know, I, I in my early parts of my uh, uh, professional life, um, I was um, I, um, I was asked about my political view, and I said, "Look, when somebody walks into my office, I don't ask what political party uh, that this person belongs to. Um, so it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm here to provide legal service. So that's what I believe. And 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 one thing that I really would like to see is that um, uh, putting all the uh, frustration on the side." Uh, you know, uh, feel great about all the accomplishments we made. I would like to see somebody put out a plan and say, this is my strategy. This is why I believe this is important to stop this genocide so that we can prevent another one. And this is also public. You know, I've been very um, open in my view. Um, I worry about the Muslims in India. I worry about the, 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 the uh, Christian community in Nigeria. So if you don't make it costly for the bad actors, if you don't impose costs on the regime or entities and individuals who are comfortable going out, chasing and collectively punishing ethno-religious groups, then this will become a new normal. Uh, the normalcy provides exception and exception, both. That is a very dangerous trend line. That's where we are today. 
Nuri Turkel is an Uyghur Muslim lawyer who currently serves as chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. He was named Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World in 2020 and in 2021, was also named to Fortune Magazine's 50 Greatest Leaders. His latest memoir is called No Escape, The True Story of China's Genocide of the Uyghurs. And Nuri, it has been an honor to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much, Arslan, for having me on.